Hey, Carl here with a very special offer for music to code by. You can now get the whole 20 track collection for $19.99 while electrons last. Go to my new store at pwop.e-junkie.com. That's pwop.e-junkie.com. And get it now before I change my mind. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl and Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Happy New yeah, Year! Yeah, it's that time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's good. Uh, although we can't be sure 2021 came, be, you know, came uh, without incident because this is December 21st right. as of this recording. Yeah. And so, so time, time shifting we, is complicated. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if Nostradamus was right, we might not be here, right? You might not be listening to this. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I think the only thing Nostradamus hey. was right was boil your water before you drink it. That was all. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's the thing we can count on. Hey, uh, I got something to share with you, my mm -hmm. friend, uh, over Better Know Framework. Right. So, roll the music. All right, man, what do you got? I gave myself an early Christmas present, Richard. Did you? It's a Samsung 49-inch curved gaming monitor. Oh, man, that thing is huge. Yeah. See, it's nice. So, I mean, question number one, does it fit on your desk? Because they're really, that is very big. So, here's what I have to do. I have my, I have my laptop, right? Right. And that's on my desk. And I had to push this to the back of the desk, put a stool behind it, <laughs> and then I have a John Besh, my New Orleans book that's high enough to just match the height of the desk. So the back of the stand is sitting on that. The front of the stand is sitting on my desk. Wow. Yeah. It's totally just hacky, janky, right? And it's wide. Like you're scanning left to right. Yes. Like you almost can't take the whole screen in at once. The 21 by nine, right? Right. I haven't found anything square and big enough to put over both my desk and that book so I could raise the height of it. But I guess if I had a piece of wood, I could do that. Right now, it's like at perfect eye level, right. but my laptop is just a little bit too high to cut off the middle of the of what I can see. And your laptop can drive this thing at full bore? Let me tell you something. I plugged this thing in and just hit Windows P yeah. and it came Doink. up no problem. And what is it, 5,600 by 1,440? Like, it's... it's Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. And you're not a gamer, so... so the, you, are you coding on no. this thing? I'm doing everything on it. I'm doing Adobe Premiere video projects. I'm doing audio projects. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've got... So, let me just tell you the, the experience that I had. First of all, right now, it's about 1,000 bucks, 1,100 right. bucks. When I got it the first time... Yes, the first time. Uh. <laughs> it came broken. Oh, no. Yeah. And there was a little crack in the screen. I had to send it back. So, I bought another one and, you know, asked for a refund, whatever, sent it back. So, I just immediately bought another one. And when I went to buy it, it was $300 less than it was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. But it is... 
120 hertz and they do offer a 240 hertz yeah. version. I'm not sure my laptop will be able to no. power that, but I don't need 240 hertz. No, you'll hertz end up turning it down anyway, right? Like realistically. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do love it. That's awesome. Right now, I've got Zencaster on the left. I've got Adobe Audition on the right. I've got my main screen, which is my main browser. And then I've got uh, other things that we're looking at in the middle. And the right curve's not me. too weird for coding no, on or anything like that. I love that. it. That's interesting. I love That's it. That's cool. It's just enough. That's a, Well, Merry Christmas to you, man. What a great gadget. Yeah. And right? something you'll use, you use almost every day. So, yeah, spend money on yeah, your screen. Yeah. I've already been a lot more productive just than having, you know, things off to the side. Yeah. And I, I find myself around. saving certain work until I can get back to my big screen. Yep. It's just like there's certain class of work. It's more efficient to do it on the big screen. Definitely. Awesome. That's what I got. Who's talking to us today? Grab the for show 1625, the one we did back in March of 2019 uh, with Victoria mm-hmm. Al- uh, Almazova. Uh, when we were at NDC Lending, we were talking about putting security into your applications. I know we're going to talk a lot about security today. And uh, that was just a really fun conversation we had with her. And, and Derek Smith brought yeah. up this point. Again, it's from two years ago. She said, uh, since I'm in the middle of retrofitting an existing product or application, I find a lot of parallel with this discussion on security. My current work adding accessibility compliance to an existing application. These are both cross-cutting concerns that tend to get overlooked in the initial build-out. For the same reason, it can slow down and complicate the development process. So, this idea of adding accessibility and security after the fact are really hard. But when you look at them in the beginning, you're just like intimidated by them. Uh, and I appreciate the challenge of shifting left. So, getting those things involved earlier and bringing the discussion back to product management and road mapping so we can plan for compliance rather than kick the can down the road for some future team to deal with. And you can tell Derek was the future team. It's like, why am I doing this? And, uh, and he finally says, since you're in, we're in London, when you recorded this, do all the websites say because of GDPR, this site uses biscuits rather than cookies? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, they don't, but that's funny. And now that they're not in the EU anymore, are they going to stop complying with GDPR? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. So, uh, I've been binge watching Gordon Ramsay shows, oh, no. which is in and of itself hilarious, yes. but you do have to get used to a certain amount of personal insults, you know, <laughs> coming out, out of his mouth to people who aren't doing things the right way, you know, and he, he likes to call people, you donkey, right? The donkey <laughs> comment. <laughs> you donut. <laughs> and another one, another one says, uh, chef, here's the basil. And he goes, Damn it! It's Basil! How many times do I have to tell you, you donkey? <laughs> You're just looking for a fight now? Is that what it's about? It's just, okay. yeah. He's just trying to get good ratings, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, you know, you see regular interviews with him. He's not like that. It's clearly no, these shows where he's, they make money off of his his loud mouth. I liken it to being a like a drill sergeant. Yeah. Like, you know, you put on that uniform. You're a drill sergeant. That's your job is to you know, freak people out and scare them into compliance. Something like that. You know, something like that. Is there a message there for security as well? Maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Probably not. That's awesome. (laughs) I just feel like talking. So, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. 
And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Just because. <sighs> yeah. We, just because. It's a new year. Yeah. Well, let's introduce our guest, shall we? Mm-hmm. Maya Katsarowski is a product manager at GitHub in software supply chain security. Basically, she worries about the software you depend on that you didn't write yourself, like the security of open source. Welcome, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, really excited to talk to you about uh, everything that's gone on. It's been a tough security year 2020, ending with this crazy hack, possibly by state actors, because I think it falls right in the area you focus on protecting source code. Mm. Yeah, uh, SolarWinds has certainly been quite the news item. No kidding. I mean, just, just I'm thinking from the business perspective, it says it doesn't matter if you're a high security company. If you have a high security customer, you're at risk. Exactly. And I think that the, the SolarWinds is obviously looking at, you know, commercial third parties. So how you how you manage your your um, vendors and your third parties that you rely on. I think it's mm-hmm. what, what I'm focused on more on and what I'm interested in as well is uh, open source um, dependencies that you have. So you might also use a component of open source somewhere in your um, supply chain, somewhere in your environment that uh, that you don't exactly know how it's maintained. And that's what I right. that's what I worry worry myself about. Well, and, and we, we always presume this idea that since it's open source, you couldn't hide a piece of malware in there. I don't think that's really true, though. Like you, you probably <laughs> could. Not everyone studies every line of code before they check it in. Right. I mean, the idea with open source is that, you know, with all with more eyes, all bugs are shallow, right? That if you have people looking at it, more people looking at it, then you should be able to find security issues. The reality is not necessarily a lot of people are actually doing those security audits. Right. Or going and looking at what they're using. Um, I think there is there is a benefit to being to being open in that it's it's like you said it's harder to, harder to hide something uh, explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- without a doubt, and stuff is very findable too. I, I've also appreciated that GitHub. I mean, sends me security reports on a routine basis about out of date uh, libraries and and those kinds of things. It's like here are easy things you can do to improve your security at any given time. I don't know if you're directly involved in that. Yeah, I believe you're referring to Dependabot, which is actually um, one of the products in my in my area. Okay. So Dependabot will send you uh, a email or web notification or or notif- notifications if you prefer, uh, but lets you know when you have uh, a dependency that you're that you're relying on that has a known vulnerability, mm-hmm. and will send you a pull request to update that dependency to a known good version. Yeah, and thanks for that. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Please, please merge the PRs. That would make it yes. even better. <laughs> oh, no, I actually have to accept them too? That's no fun. <laughs> uh, you, so every year, GitHub does this state of the Octaverse uh, document, which I think in the old days was mostly, look how many people are using GitHub. But clearly, it's expanded. Over on the run-as side, I had a conversation with Nicole Forsgren not long mm-hmm. ago talking about the view of DevOps from the context of GitHub. But I got to think you have, as a security professional, an amazing view of software security with all these projects flowing through GitHub. We have some really good data with Nicole's research, you know, some really good insights into what's going on. So what have you learned? What what, what could we learn from this report? Uh, I mean, quite a few things. Uh, If I look at some of the kind of top findings, Mm -hmm. um, one of the ones that uh, was most surprising to me is the the rate at which people fix vulnerabilities is not necessarily dependent on the severity of that vulnerability. 
Interesting. Oh, wow. So you would think that if I have a dependency that has a critical vulnerability, I'm going to fix it faster than a dependency with a low vulnerability. And what we're seeing is that, yeah, it's a little bit faster, but, you know, just a little bit faster, not much faster. And so the the severity of the vulnerability is not the, the major decider in how quickly you're going to actually fix it, which was interesting to me. Do we know what the major decider then is? And no, I mean, my hypothesis... My hypothesis is having, you know, good automation and, and um, you know, good working principles in your team, not being siloed, et cetera, the whole DevOps mentality. But we didn't explicitly, explicitly look at that. Um, we did find, though, that automation does accelerate your ability to actually uh, fix issues in your environment. So referring back to Dependabot that we just talked about, repositories that had Dependabot pull requests patch their software 13 days sooner versus 33 days plus 13, if that makes any sense. Um, 1.4 times faster than those that didn't. Right. Um, so using automation help, helps you shift left, helps you deal with issues much faster in your environment. Okay. So if you've got an automated pipeline, you're less concerned about pushing those kinds of changes down. That's definitely true. Right? If you have good tests, hopefully very, very few security changes should freak you out because it should be relatively easy for you to make those changes in your environment. I say that relatively. Um, I'm, I'm continuing to be shocked by the number of, of developers who choose to make changes to their environments when they have no testing in place. Uh, you're going to test. You're just testing in production. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very risky way of testing. But yeah, for sure. That's one way of testing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, I, they, I can't tell you how many times in advising a development group where they go, we really don't have a lot of tests. It's like, I'm, a, I'm free here to tell you that's very normal but fixable. Like you can get to work on that. It's true. It's just, yeah. I, I can't believe how often the main thing I say as an old developer now is don't worry. That's normal. Nobody has <laughs> enough tests. Everybody needs more tests. You definitely need more tests. <laughs> but, oh, wow. Well, that, that's an interesting thing that criticality is not the real driver here that the ease of deployment, it seems would be the, the, the bigger one. Can you even make an assessment of how vulnerable most software is? Like, is that a metric? Um, no, we can look at like, for example, what percentage of software has known vulnerabilities, mm -hmm. <laughs> but then, you know, there's always unknown vulnerabilities. Right. Right. So, so some of the interesting, interesting data here that we came across, the first one was um, just how reliant everyone is on open source which, you know, we all know, seen a handful of reports that have said this, but, you know, pulling the, the data from GitHub at that scale really brings the message home. So something from 65% to 94% of active public repos use open source software, uh, which is huge. And that variability is really based on ecosystem. So you've seen the Java ecosystem use a little bit less and things like JavaScript use a lot more, which if you're familiar with how JavaScript just pulls in dependencies for everything, that shouldn't be a surprise. When you're looking at that data from the context of someone participating in GitHub, doesn't that sort of bias towards open source because GitHub? Mm, yes. I mean, GitHub has a lot of commercial um, enterprises, uh, commercial customers as well. We're not looking at right. private data here. So we're looking at active public repos. Right. Um, so that, that's, that's fair in the sense that if you're an enterprise, you might have a lower use of open source. But what's public and open source and people's you know, small projects tends to reflect what developers are also doing at work. Okay, that's yeah, really interesting. And so, because there's always been a conversation on the, on this show, especially, there's plenty of .NET developers that still aren't that comfortable with open source. And so, we've, we've sort of had this belief that there's lots of folks just aren't using open source at all. And then, 
you know, but at the same time, you're seeing this huge amount of open source being utilized. I would think of it slightly differently. You know how I used to say like 10 years ago, it's like, you know, oh, I don't use the cloud. We don't use the cloud. And it's like, well, if your developer has a credit card, you're using the cloud. It's like, well, if your right. developer has a command line, you're using open source. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell yeah. you. If you use Dropbox, you're using the cloud. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, just because you don't think of it as the cloud, don't think of it as open source doesn't mean it isn't mm. either. Yeah, I wonder how often yeah. we've had projects that have open source in them that no one's really acknowledged that they do. I think people don't even really think about it. Mm -hmm. But it's there. <laughs> and, yeah. it, it, and the other thing is, like, it shouldn't scare you, right? Like, you should keep using open source and supporting open source and developing open source. It's just being aware of what's in your environment and being aware of the security issues that those dependencies might have. All right. Uh, other elements from the security report? Where is the security report living now? Can we see it? Yeah, it's at octoverse.github.com. Nice. I love, I love the Octoverse. Mm. Very, very clean. Yeah. Um, I think the other, the other interesting findings, you're talking about, you know, how secure is open source overall, right? If I, if I look back at, at that, you know, we said active repos that had that use open source. If you look at the active repos that received dependabot alerts, so those are alerts that they have a vulnerable dependency. Um, on average, the, 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 the expected, chance of getting a security alert in, in one year is 59%. Wow. So expect it to happen. Correct. A, no, a normal thing. And and then, of course, the question is response time. Like, what do you do about this? How long be, before you, you get in there and start fixing stuff? Yeah, you're bringing me to the, to the kind of other major finding, um, which is the overall time to find and remediate these issues. So we also looked at time to find because um, GitHub has a, a tool called CodeQL, which is sort of like a really powerful data analysis tool that lets you look for security vulnerabilities, right? You can like say, hey, I'm looking for a vulnerability that takes this type of input and puts out this kind of output and and let me query my code basically to find that thing. Right. And so we were looking at open source code and looking at how, how long it took between when that vulnerability was introduced to when it was actually disclosed um, in, in that environment, right? Mm -hmm. And Looking at that life cycle, not just looking at the time to patch at the end, but the time to detect plus the time to patch. So the time to detect, we're talking uh, more than four years to find a typical vulnerability to, and, being, and, and being disclosed. And then from there, the community will fix the vulnerability in open source in just over four weeks. And then it takes 10-ish uh, weeks to let users know that there is a vulnerability and then it takes about one week from a user knowing to fix it. Wow. Well, the four years one is the one that grabs me. Like, right. holy man, that's a long mm -hmm. time. So if I make a mistake in code, essentially, and introduce a vulnerability, we're not going to detect it for so long. On average, correct. There's, and, and like think about it, like mm -hmm. the life of the data on GitHub, right? Four years is probably, if I had to guess, like actually like a lowball estimate. Because that long tail hasn't like hasn't isn't long enough yet <laughs> for it to really right. to, to, to exist. Um, so then then the the takeaway there is if it takes so long to detect something like yes we can speed up the time to fix and we can speed up the time to alert and we can speed up time to to then apply a patch etc. But what you really want to do is eliminate that thing altogether. Right. And so like if you scan your code before you add it to your environment, right? You have a lot of tools now again shifting left to do something in IDE in a pull request that has a huge impact on what actually ends up in your environment. So I got a question out of left field. Um, I see that you also categorize the, the different languages that the repositories are, are using and JavaScript is way out front. 
Does the language used have any impact on security? So, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, misleading. <laughs> so kind of. Okay. So some languages, because we'll have more um, vulnerabilities that impact a wider amount of packages. But that doesn't right. necessarily mean that the, that the language is less secure as much as the right. language has a lot of dependencies in that, in that language. So again, looking at something right. like JavaScript, right? It doesn't mean that JavaScript is less or more secure than other languages, but uh, 73% of active repos would have received, that were JavaScript would have received a security alert in the last year. Right. Okay. And, so and just by sheer numbers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's also related to the JavaScript ecosystem, right? You have a handful of direct dependencies and you have like hundreds of indirect dependencies. And right. so yeah. if any one of those has a vulnerability, then chances are you have a vulnerability as well. Especially if, you know, they're, they're linked via the cloud, right? Instead of, you know, packages put actually into the repos, they're linked. Now you have a special problem. In fact, was it just a couple of years ago? There was an issue with one of the uh, JavaScript methods that somebody was handling in some repo somewhere, and everybody was linked via URL to it, and all these apps went down. All right, and he pulled the library. You're talking about LeftPad. Yeah, he pulled the library. LeftPad, yeah. This is a few years ago. That's it. Yep. Yeah, LeftPad. Uh, the developer wasn't getting um, compensated for it, um, had a... Uh, if I recall, this is before before I worked on on this topic, had a copyright uh, debate with NPM, where there was a yeah. company that uh, claimed the name LeftPad. NPM said, "Okay, you you have this name, you can have the library LeftPad." The developer got upset and pulled. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm completely mess messing up the story. They were disagreeing over a library called Kick. So I don't know if you remember if you've heard of Kick K I K, which is a Canadian. Uh, messaging service, right? And uh, the the owner of LeftPad also had a library called Kick. Kick got pulled and given to Kick, the Canadian messaging company, in protest that okay. developer pulled all of his libraries, including LeftPad, not realizing right. that LeftPad had such an impact on the industry. Well, we all found out in a big old hurry. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like two two three hours later until until it got reverted. Yeah. But it's also, that it was a, also a good, uh, a warning, you know, a good, uh, what do we call it? A lesson learned not yeah, to definitely by URL. I mean, you'd think so, but then we had like ES Lint and a few other scenarios where it wasn't pulling a library and making it unavailable, but it was certainly like very noticeably um, having an impact on the ecosystem. Sure. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I'm going back to that four year number and thinking when you check that code in, was it a known vulnerability or an unknown vulnerability? Like I'm thinking about the the yeah. when they noticed that open SSH problem that had been in there for years and years, but nobody had noticed it. Now it's a known vulnerability and we get to work on it. But it was always there. You know, it just was sort of unknown. I, I don't know that we actually build code with known vulnerabilities. For, I'm sure we do. I don't know if we can break that number out. I, I think there's very few. So ideally, if someone's scanning for vulnerabilities in their code before they commit it, they'll find it and fix it. Right. Um, I think today, a lot of security works as a gate at the end of development. So you, you know, checking your code, and then you have some tool that runs and tells you, here's all the, you know, potential cross-site scripting errors that you have, et cetera. That's known right. as SAST, um, static application security testing. The problem is that a lot of those time, a lot of the time, that gives you the information after you've already written the code. 
it's not when you're in an IDE. It's not when you're checking in the code. You're getting right. it as like yeah. a to-do list, you know, two weeks later. And you have to go back into that, that you know, that function that you haven't touched, touched in a long time and figure out what's going on and try to fix it and all that kind of stuff. And that just makes it really hard to do security right. Um, yeah. The other main issue that you have with that, that type of tool today um, is that is uh, false positives. It's really frustrating for a developer to, you know, get told, fix these 10 items and two of them are real and eight of them are not. Right. And they got to spend yeah. the same amount of time trying to figure out that's not real. Great. Exactly. Yeah. Very. So there are, you know, tools in DAS and SAST and DAST and IAST and et cetera. I can name more acronyms that, that are helpful. <laughs> I think, I think the, the general tendency though is, is to shift left, right? Make it in context for the user because the user doesn't want to fix it after the fact. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very reasonable um, request. Yeah. While the code is still in your head to be able to get hints that there are more secure ways to do things or that, that right. the same way that in, then telecode helps you write better code in other respects. Couldn't it, and I'm totally visual studio biased here. Uh, <laughs> couldn't we get, couldn't we get those same kinds of hints around security issues, which are fascinating. And it's exactly what you're describing. Like how often have you attached to like autocomplete the name of a function and you like get it, you know, have a typo, but your IDE yeah. tells you that you have a typo. Right then and there. Mm -hmm. Well, the big thing is with the typo, the code won't compile. I get a red squiggle. <laughs> I get a lot of red squiggles. The idea that I would get a security squiggle is really interesting to me. That, 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 because it's a much subtler concept. Right. To, to, uh, it, this is a secure thing to do. This is not a secure thing to do. But I mean, going all the way back to the comment we opened the show with, with Derek Ware was he was retrofitting security and, and, and accessibility rather than bringing them in the beginning. That seems to be the norm. Unfortunately. <laughs> I just don't, yeah, I just don't know if, are we there for a better way? Like, what do we got to do to actually improve that? I'm not, not going to put all of that on you, Maya. Like, I'm <laughs> debating in my own head. It's like, we, we, we need to be better here. Uh, I, I think we're getting there. I think there's more and more tools in this category. Um I would just challenge, you know, just like we worry about DevOps and combining development and operations, and we obviously have this trend around the term DevSecOps, and, you know, security's in there too. It's like, right. security's actually not that special, right? Ideally, all of all of the tools that you want to have in your development pipeline should be continuously integrated into your pipeline. Right. And so, it might be security, but it might be accessibility, like you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the idea of building that in the pipeline and that every build is goes through those tests too. It's evaluated mm -hmm. for those things as well. You mentioned this in, in the report, and it, we opened it also with this around the, the solar winds attack. This is, is, are we getting to a more dangerous time, do you think, in software that there's more intentional backdoors and malware attacks into source code? So we did look at um, the type of vulnerabilities and whether they were, they were on purpose or whether they were accidents. Right. And we found that only 17% of vulnerabilities, this is in the state of Octoverse, 17% of vulnerabilities that we looked at were explicitly malicious, but that they impacted a very, very small percentage of the overall um, pie with only only impacting 0.2% of the alerts for vulnerable dependencies. Okay. So most of the issues, 83% of the issues are just errors, are just develop, developer errors. Right. So most of the time you should be thinking in terms of errors. but Yeah. There, you know, there is such a thing as intentional maliciousness here, and certainly it's all over the news. 
at this particular moment. Still, you know, Correct. we're recording this in December for publication in January, and we're in the middle of this. We still don't even fully understand the scope of the solar winds attack. And I think there's a difference between, um, you know, someone trying to insert a backdoor or some some additional functionality or processes into a tool versus someone just straight up publishing malware, right? right. A lot of the time we talk about supply chain attacks and the attack was, I, 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 I'm trying to do typo squatting which is taking a common package name and, you know, changing a letter or changing an underscore to a hyphen or that type of thing. And then publishing malware at the, at the alternative location, right? That is an attack, but to me, that's way less sophisticated than right. someone kind of joining your project, actively contributing to it, et cetera. Right. I mean, similarly, right. like it would be, it would be, I guess it'd be kind of like someone if, if solar winds was distributed on a CD-ROM, right? <laughs> Back to the day, yeah. like somebody in the mail sending you a wrong CD-ROM, like hoping that you're, that you're going to plug it in versus like mm. actually going in and attacking solar winds. Like that's a much more sophisticated attack. Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the apocryphal story of the Stuxnet attack against Iranian mm -hmm. uranium enrichment was that they left USB keys in the parking lot and people picked right. them up and stuck them in machines. Don't but know it if it's true or not. Apparently, <laughs> it worked. Clearly, it did. But this is a much more modern thing. And, uh, you know, it's using the Internet. It's the way that we deploy software now. It's taking advantage of the trust that SolarWind customers had in SolarWinds. Mm -hmm. you know, that, and that's, a, a money, I think, a very deep concept. But you I think, it, it, granted, SolarWinds is not an open source project. What if they're trying to imagine being able to check in malware through a pull request and not being detected? I think it's possible. I've seen people accept pull requests with the cursory looks at it. Somebody's yeah. just not paying attention. That's what you're counting and on. I'm, I'm looking at your security report here, and maybe you already said this. Forgive me if you have, but 17% of vulnerabilities are explicitly malicious. Yep. But triggered just 0.2% of alerts. Right. Yep. Yikes. I mean, the, the... Yeah. People aren't paying attention. The upside there is, like we said, like the, the very small amount of... Uh, the relatively limited impact that that had. Yeah. Hmm. Although when there is an impact, boy, it could be a whopper. And folks, right. I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. You know, there are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them. And some of you may have even used a VPN before, but I like to do research on my sponsors and I can only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second is speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for two years now, and my internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from others is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy, even Mama Franklin can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. 
So protect yourself with a VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash dot net. That's expressvpn.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash dot net. And we're back. It's dot net rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. And we're talking to Maya. Now, I get to say your last name. Maya Karazowski? Kacharowski. Very close. Kacharowski. I apologize. Uh, from GitHub, talking about this amazing uh, State of the Octoverse security report. And, I, and I'm just grateful that you're getting insight from all this data to help us be better. Because you, of course, are getting examples of very successful secure software flowing through GitHub as well, I presume. It, it's also just a beautiful example of communication with text and pictures and graphics. Like the design of this report is beautiful. It's really well done. Yeah, Nicole Horsgren, who led the research, did an awesome job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, she's good about thinking about how to talk to 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 dev folks uh, around these things. Yeah. So, of course, this is our focus on open source. Uh, any of the quote unquote worst vulnerabilities you want to talk about in twenty twenty? What did things go down? We've talked about SolarWinds, but that got nothing to do with open source. We we did do a case study in here, which I think was kind of interesting, um, on you know, what was one of the the worst vulns. And it wasn't necessarily because it was a particularly critical or or, or um or publicized vuln. Uh, but if you look at one of the most impactful vulns this year, it was CVE twenty twenty 8203. Uh, it was in Lodash, and it's single-handedly responsible for affecting over 5 million uh, repos on GitHub. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most widely used NPM packages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It was a severe vulnerability in prototype of prototype pollution in that, in that package. And we sent alerts to over 5 million repos to tell them to patch. Wow. Because, of course, it was detected, Jeez. it was fixed, but then everybody has to get that new version of Lodash to really put that uh, put that away. Right. To what we were talking about earlier, you know, the time to, to identify it and the time to, to develop a fix. Uh, and then the time yeah. to remediate is really just like how, how quickly can users go ahead and patch that? So did it take four years to pick up the prototype pollution? Um, I'm just looking. This one took eight years. <laughs> 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 So that vulnerability had been in code in the field in millions of projects for as much as eight years. Yep. Wow. Yikes. This is I mean, this is it's our the kind world. Of thing where it's like I look back at something like Equifax, right? Yeah. And people yeah. Can make fun of Equifax if they want to or whatnot, but like you have so many vulnerabilities, so many dependencies. It's really hard to keep them straight. <laughs> well, and and who has enough resources to have folks constantly monitoring as these comes in, criticalize them, decide how important they are relative to your app, and then get them fixed as quickly as possible. I'm not, mm. not that I'm going to, I am not going to defend Equifax, but uh, I, you know, you got to look at it as a whither thou goest. Like, you know, we are all walking through the same forest here. It could happen to anyone, really. Right. Eight years. Jeez. This is scary stuff. But of course, it takes that long for that many people to use the software, right? Like that's sort of the side effect. The reason it was such, so impactful is it had been around long enough. 
It's almost inevitable, it seems, that a successful piece of software widely spread and existing for some time is going to turn up with a vulnerability at some point that's that's pretty resonant. That scares me a little bit less because if it's really successful, then you hopefully have a lot of people looking at it, using it. Maybe they have a more established security team, etc. I'm a little bit more worried about the kind of small to medium open source projects. So in these situations where they've identified malicious injections of malware in software, do the people that put those pull requests in are they trackable? Has anybody ever been prosecuted for doing anything like this? I don't know about the legal side of it. Um, but at least for some past incidents, I look at something like ES Lint, like we know what like the username of the person was. Yeah. Right. That's about it though. And, and whether or not it got prosecuted is another thing entirely. Like But laws are funny. GitHub has their GitHub has their credit card information because they're or their bank account information. So it's possible, I suppose. No? Not necessarily. If they could be a free user. I I suppose you're right. Yeah, that's right. Just because you're contributing to a repo doesn't mean you have a repo. Yeah. And you're paying for it. Huh. Ouch. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, the legal prosecution, I don't know that that's ever going to stop anything. It's Uh, true. The the idea that we can detect and repair in shorter and shorter amounts of time. When we get back to this ability to remediate quickly... Uh, and again, it's a whole automation story. You know, there's a conversation about the shifting left, and we've said it a few times there. But I mean, what does that really mean? Is that is that just folks getting together earlier in a project? Like, there's no nothing to do with an existing piece of software except refit. Yeah, it's not about a particular tool or or anything like that. It's it's even a specific process per se. It's just the idea of rather than doing something later in your development process, later in your development pipeline. Just to do mm-hmm. it earlier. Right. So like if you were going to run, we talked earlier about scanning. If you were going to run a scan before deployment anyways, why not run it before built? Right. Or run it, run it before pull request. And, and, and that applies to anything that you might want to do, right? Um, if you think about like the checklist of things you need to do before you actually push something to production, just doing some of those sooner. Yeah. And, and, and any move to the left is kind of shifting left. There's no, there's no definition of what specifically needs what to be. So like, if you do it, you know, if you go from only scanning things in production to doing something at deployment time, that's already shifting left. If you go from yeah. deployment time to build time, you've shifted more, you know, if you go to PR, if you go to IDE, um, some companies, you know, you have these, these kind of design reviews and things like that, where you actually talk about what you're going to go build before you build it. And in that, in that situation, part of shifting left might be like, you know, bringing in the security team as part of that discussion to help challenge some of the assumptions you're making. Yeah. When do I include these scanning tools in the pipeline? Like I, I've certainly seen it where it's only when we were close to going to V1 that they then started inserting those tools into the pipeline right. and start doing those tests rather than from the first builds on. So, yeah, that's certainly a, a shift left thing. Including your security people in the conversation early and you, and your accessibility people for that most is just a good idea too. Or at least putting that on the agenda. Because sometimes it's not a separate person. It's just, have we thought about what is what is the security yeah. plan? What is the accessibility plan? Privacy as well. Right. Well, I mean, part of that, I have to wonder with everything that's happened, you know, here we are, first show of 2021, like, when do these laws get expanded? Because it feels like there's a weight of, 
you know, beyond the GDPR and the EU to more of the world wanting to, to take privacy and security more se- seriously. Mm-hmm. What's a, what's a bug door? <laughs> yeah, a bug, a bug door, um, is, and I'm not sure how we define it in the Octavius report off the top of my head, but a bug door is when someone finds a bug and leaves it there with the intent of exploiting it later. Ah, so it's not necessarily maliciously planted like a backdoor would be. Yeah. But a bug. Exactly. But it's just, uh, it's a passive aggressive backdoor, I guess. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's what you're, you know, if you think about commercial software, when someone's selling you, um, if I'm, I don't know, a, some sort of national agency or dealer of whatever, whoever these people are, if I'm selling you a, you know, zero day, which is a vulnerability that it doesn't have a patch on, on day, on day one. So it's, you know, vulnerable on, on day zero, um, is, uh, it's a bug door. It's something that is exploitable, that is useful for me to, 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 to know about, but that is not currently patched in that environment. Yeah. It's a, not sanitizing inputs, right? It's uh, a, bu- a buffer overflow of protection. You don't necessarily have a specific exploit, but you know that's a place to poke at. And it's also when a like a bug is discovered and you you know can't tell if it was an accident or if it was intentional. Right. So like a backdoor might be someone p- purposefully put it there, but a bug door might also be like ah uh, I don't know if somebody put it here on purpose or not. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to trace back who put it there. Yeah, it's very tough to for that to be provable, and and and, and it, as the data seems to show, there's relatively few people intentionally building vulnerability in the software. It's unintentional vulnerabilities, but in apathy and cleaning them up too. Yeah, I mean, all of this data has the giant caveat that like you must, you know, here's a percentage of things that are vulnerable for the vulnerabilities that we know about, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And here's a percentage of those vulnerabilities that are malicious for the ones that we know are malicious. Right. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's really, it's really hard to categorize what someone was trying to do and, and if they were trying to evade detection. Yeah. The fact that the criticality of the vulnerability doesn't seem to motivate begs the question, why do we categorize? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we also changed the scheme, right? CVS has changed what five years ago um, and changed the severities of a lot of bugs. Right. Um, which I think arguably has led to a lot of confusion, at least for, for the security researchers and developers that I know who like are like, Oh, is it a, really a low or is it a medium or is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And does that really mean anything one way or the other? Right. Uh, and certainly when it comes down to you, you fix what you can fix. That doesn't seem too hazardous. Although yeah. Do the criticals bubble up to the CTO and they're now pounding on your door as well. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer to any of that. I think they're not that I'm suggesting they're not going to still score them. Just that the scoring doesn't seem to really matter a whole lot. I mean, I think the really interesting one for me from this is a lot of companies I know will have a a policy around um, time to fix. Right. So they'll Mm -hmm. say mean time to resolve must be, you know, less than 30 days for a critical, less than, you know, 90 days for a high, less than, you know, 180 days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, if you look at the data and like, it doesn't matter, then like maybe these policies are all kind of stupid. Yeah, like, that's what it seems to me. Why are, we, like, why are we writing these crazy policies that don't do anything? Well, and, ju- and just to simplify, like, because this is actually a more complicated matrix than this, because there's also difficulty to fix. Right. Yeah, this is a low criticality, but it's a trivial repair. Just put it in. 
Like, why would I wait 180 days to do that? You shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think it's, and not that they're saying don't fix this for 180 days, but it's like you're trying to prioritize. And so you bump other stuff. You know, the, the real question is how often does a vulnerability bump a feature right. in a sprint? And that is a tough, like, that is a survey problem. It's like, have you done this? How often does it happen? Because I, I think it's relatively rare or hard to happen. It's just another item. But, you know, you, when I think about the biggest sort of impact on software, I think about, like, going all the way back to Windows X, XP SP2, right? When Bill Gates put out the word about we need to make Windows more secure and took a non-trivial chunk of the Windows team and had that, and mostly senior folks too, to focus right. on re-engineering the security of Windows. And it took a couple of years and it mm -hmm. impaired the development of Windows. Like it's one of the things that leads to the Vista debacle is XSP2 because it was such a huge fix. Uh, and it worked for better or worse. Well, how often do mid-sized teams, you know, a, a mid-band project make that sort of commit to, we, we got to burn down this set of vulnerabilities? I really, that's a tough question to answer. I hope folks listening have been there and sort of said, yeah, no, we, we prioritize that. Like if I was a project lead looking at the vulnerability stream coming in and figuring out what do I want to add to any given sprint? And when do I hit like the big red button, stop everything you're doing, we got to fix this. I mean, I think the other thing that's uh, a lot of these policies come out of a world where you were patching servers, right? Right. Where you actually have to take the thing offline and then do something with it and then apply the patch and blah, blah, blah right? And that does require time. It requires, you know, scheduled downtime Sunday at 2 a.m. or whatever it happens to be. Today, that's not the reality anymore. Yeah. That's not, you don't need that kind of lead time to fix a vulnerability. So, and, and the process is completely different, right? You fix it in your, the next version of whatever you're deploying and then deploy it. <laughs> yeah. You already have this sort of continuous deployment scheme going where new versions are coming out, you know, even daily or less or, or more often than that. So it'll, it, it's just, yeah, you don't have to make that big commit, but I think it's the right. flow of features versus the flow of fixes to be able to prioritize those things. Cause in the end, you didn't work on something else to work on repairing this vulnerability. Right. So some features delayed because we, we fix other things. And I, I don't have a problem with the prioritization. Like that should go on. You would hope, but to what degree, you know, we're never bug free. I think we're never vulnerability free either. Like you're, you are going to have to triage at some point. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was very interesting to look at the package ecosystem data here too, to just see that is this the, the you know, you compared Composer to Maven to NPM to NuGet to PyPy to RubyGems. Do you think the, 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 the vulnerabilities has to do with the age of the different package systems that older ones just naturally have more projects, have more risk to, to ecosystem, to, to um, vulnerabilities? Uh, it could be. I don't think we explicitly looked at that. I, I, my hypothesis is primarily based on the number of dependencies, right? Where it's right. normal for you to pull in a lot more dependencies in one environment than another. So something like um, JavaScript, for example, you might have only 10 direct dependencies, but you have 683 indirect dependencies or transitive dependencies. Right. Which is huge, right? Which like we know, but like it's still the seeing that number is just absolutely flabbergasting. Uh, and something yeah. like, um, I don't know, 
Python is six direct and 19 indirect. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and NuGet's numbers are crazy low, but I, but I think that might just be the, the nature of the way NuGet packages are built. They don't have as many dependencies. Right. Exactly true. NuGet's a six direct and uh, we're not sure of the indirect because the transitive, um, it's only measured for lock files. So we don't have the, the data for, for NuGet there. Yeah. So that might also just be a data hole too. Okay. That's fair. Because <laughs> you don't, you don't want to advocate for you should be using NuGet because its numbers are so low. That's not what this says. No, you should be using whatever language you're familiar with so that you can yeah. introduce fewer dependencies. And as long as you're frequently updating, I really don't care what language you use. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. regardless of what language you use, frequent updates, keeping up to date is important. You'll have, you will right. be just as vulnerable on any of these given languages. The language the, and the platform stack is not what's going to save you. Right. Your, your diligence in the end, your willingness to put your time into this stuff, I guess, is the thing that's going to save you here. Oh, what a great report and terrifying at the same time. It is awesome. It's terrifying, but it's awesome. <laughs> Are you going to make one of these every year, Maya? Uh, well, GitHub has made one every year, I believe, the last five-ish years. This right. is number five. Um, yeah. This is the first time we've put so much detail into security. We had a couple of security metrics last year. Uh, but with no Nicole here now, um, I suspect this is going to be an ongoing thing. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. It, it, your help, I, what a great way to help the industry understand itself. So I'm, I'm grateful. This is cool. Yeah, thanks, Maya. It's been uh, enlightening. Terrifying, enlightening, and awesome <laughs> all at the same time. Good. And that was only one of the three reports. There's two others to read as well. Like, there's a right. lot to know here. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, really a lot of fun to talk to you. Thanks so much. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...